Hello and welcome to A History of the United States. Episode 68. Native Americans 8. The Subarctic. Remember that this is a listener-supported podcast. If you would like to support the show, then please consider signing up for membership. Just go to the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com, and click on the PayPal subscription button. Special thanks to our newest pioneers, listeners Jacqueline and Natalie. Thanks, guys. I couldn't do the show without you. I want to begin this week with a quote from Alvin Josephy in his book, The Indian Heritage of America. Quote, The broad, sparsely populated, expansive woods, waterways, mountains, and treeless tundra, or barrens, that stretches across North America, south of the Arctic, from interior Alaska and the Canadian Rockies to Labrador and Newfoundland, has been termed the subarctic cultural area. Its native peoples lived in a hard, severe environment, and their culture varying only slightly in different regions, and here and there, from influences of neighbours in adjoining cultural areas, reflect the sternness of their existence. Hudson Bay divides the subarctic tribes roughly into two major language families, the Algonquians and the Athapascans, the latter living across the vast country west of the bay, named originally for a single band that dwelled in the vicinity of northwest Canada's Lake Athabasca. Indians of the various Athapascan-speaking tribes lived mostly in small, independent hunting and fishing groups in the great basins of the Yukon and Mackenzie rivers, and in the valleys of other streams that empty into the Arctic and Pacific Oceans, or the Gulf of Alaska. In Alaska and neighbouring parts of Canada, their tribes include the Athena on southeast Alaska's Copper River, Koyukon in the Yukon Basin in Alaska, Kutchin, a group of tribes extending from Alaska's upper Yukon Valley across the central portion of the Yukon Territory and down the valley of the lower Mackenzie River, Tanana, centred on the confluence of the Tanana and Yukon Rivers in Alaska, Tanina, about Cook Inlet and on the Kennel Peninsula on Alaska's Slink Coast, Ingalic, along the lower Yukon, Han, the upper Yukon in east-central Alaska and the Yukon Territory, and Nabensna, in the valleys of the Nabenza, Krasana, and other rivers in southeastern Alaska above the Panhandle. In the Canadian interior, Athapascan tribes included the Beaver, the Lower Peace River Basin in northern Alberta, Carrier, the valleys of the Upper Fraser, Blackwater, Nakako, and other rivers, inland from the coast in western British Columbia. Chippewan, extending northwest from Hudson Bay and north of the Churchill River to the eastern edges of Athabasca and Great Slave Lakes. Dogrib, between Great Bear Lake and on the Upper Mackenzie River. Kaska, or Nahani, in the mountains west of the Upper Mackenzie River, 
Sakani in the basins of the Parsnip, Finlay and Upper Peace Rivers, mostly in British Columbia, Chichone in the Southern Yukon Territory, and Yellowknife, northeast of the Great Slave Lake. The Algonquian-speaking tribes of the Subarctic, living generally south and east of Hudson Bay, are fewer in number. They include the Nascope in most of interior Labrador, Montagnice, southwest of the Nascope, in a larger area north of the lower stretch of the St. Lawrence River, and Cree, circling about the southern side of Hudson Bay and extending northwestward to the Churchill River and westward beyond the north side of Lake Winnipeg. In Newfoundland, Beothcooks, now extinct, spoke a tongue seemingly unrelated to any other known Indian language. End quote. Now, I understand that was a loss of names. So, if you want to go over all of that in some more detail, there are maps of Indian tribes and of Canada in general on the website for you to find. And I am once again so sorry for any bad pronunciation. Right now, I think we have another 10 episodes lined up that are very similar to this one, and the thought of doing all these names is going to kill me. But, ah, let's move on. Some of these tribes are very well studied, such as those of the southwest and those of the eastern woodlands, and others have famous features, such as the totems of the Pacific coast or the igloos of the Eskimos. While the Plains tribes are the ones most deeply ingrained in the collective psyche, the tribes of the subarctic are a bit different. They are among the least studied Native American tribes. There is not a great deal that we know about them, but there is some material that we can be quite confident of. For instance, the Algonquins of the East seem to have been in the region for a lot longer than the westerly Athapatians, who arrived much later, perhaps around 5,000 years ago, they reached the area from Alaska via Northeast Asia. Although, place a huge asterisk next to that date. The Athapatians are a group we've dealt with before in the narrative, actually, as they are often referred to by different names. Athabescan is quite a common term, but while it has a slightly different classification, it is almost interchangeable with the term Nadene, who we've spoken of as the second-to-last arrivals on the continent, the ones before the Eskimos. Some Athapascans began to press southwards in the centuries immediately before the arrival of the Europeans, presumably looking for lands with a milder climate. They pushed through either the Great Plains or the Great Basin and arrived in the southwest. These tribes include the Apaches and the Navajos, but we've dealt with them already. Much like the tribes of the Arctic, agriculture was not practiced by the Native Americans of the subarctic. All hunted and or fished, whatever was plentiful in their own territory. Some tribes would hunt as much as possible, while tribes living along rivers of the west were abundant with salmon, and so they would have fish as their primary food source. 
Away from rivers, hunting would obviously play a greater role. This might be the large game, such as moose, caribou, musk, oxen, bears and elk. Small game, such as beaver or rabbits. In addition to this, they would also hunt waterfowl and would have berries and roots. The subarctic is quite variable, and so there were local hunting specialities, rather than a standard practice across the area. Alvin Josephy gives some good examples of this. Quote, In the extreme north, where some of the traits of the tribes closely resembled those of the neighbouring Eskimos, the Indians hunted caribou on the barrens in the summer, snaring them in pounds and spearing them in lakes. In the winter, they tracked them in the woods. In Labrador, the Nascobee hunted caribou on the open, grass-covered plateau of their country during the winter. In the spring, some of the people went down towards the coast to fish, while others remained inland, fishing and hunting small game. Their neighbours, the Montagnas, hunted moose in the winter, but in the spring went down the rivers to spear salmon and eels and to harpoon seals on the shores of the Lower St. Lawrence. Throughout the area, tribes used bone hooks, nets and spears to fish, and some fished at night from canoes, using the light of jack pine torches. End quote. Just as hunting styles were different, so were their houses. Plank houses were common in the west, in a style close to those used in the northwest Pacific coastal region. The carriers, who lived in British Columbia, lived in underground houses in the winter, while in the summer, they lived in wallless houses with wooden roofs. The Kutchins, who lived in interior Alaska, used domed sweat houses in the winter, with snow on the outside walls and a hole in the roof for smoke to escape from, while in the summer they used tents. For most in the subarctic, they had homes which were conical, having poles covered with either bark or animal skins. These were, of course, the ancestor to the teepees that would famously be used by the Plains tribes. Further in the east, the Crees would use these prototipes, but they would in addition use wigwams, a larger domed-shaped building made up of arched poles. Much like in the Arctic, family units were of prime importance. It was the family units that lived together and moved around their own territories, securing food. This would have meant more than any sense of tribal nation. Leaders did not have much in the way of real authority. It was a tough environment, in particular for the elderly, who were often abandoned if they couldn't keep up with the group. There was, of course, great variation between the tribes. Some did this, but others were respectful. Some groups were more respectful to women. Others treated women as second-class citizens, expecting them to do all the manual labour that the tribe required. Clothing also varied, but was generally made out of animal skins. Those tribes near the Pacific Northwest area had a more complex society, with several layers of social stratification, 
usually a nobility, commoners, and slaves. Nobility is probably the best word we can use to describe this group, but you shouldn't think of aristocrats. What made you a noble was how much you gave away. A commoner could hold potlatches, or giving away feasts, and after enough wealth had been given away, they could adopt a noble title. Some societies were warlike, others kept themselves. As I need to consistently repeat, the subarctic is a huge area. Variation is only to be expected. The final topic we're going to touch on today is religion. As we've touched on in numerous episodes, the New World never developed religions in quite the same way as the Old World did. Religion did exist, but it wasn't codified. Perhaps a sense of the supernatural is a better way to describe it. There was a sense of a creator god in the subarctic, usually associated with either the sun or the sky, but it was a distant god. It had very little to do with the day-to-day affairs of men. They were more concerned with the spirits that lived in their world, ghosts and demons, which haunted the woods and travelled on the winds, and spirit animals who lived all around and would contact humans through dreams. It would be possible to interact with these various spirits through rituals which would be overseen by the medicine men, the shamans, practitioners of magic and spells. Although it must be said that there was of course a variation between all tribes and not all had shaman. We will not have that much to do with the tribes of the subarctic, but we will eventually return to them as they come into contact with British and French merchants to trade furs. While our primary concern is the United States, Canada will play a substantial role, and I expect that at some unspecified point in the future, we will need to deal with the Hudson Bay Company, but that will not be for some time. If you've enjoyed today's episode and my many mispronunciations, then why not consider signing up for membership and you can hear me mispronounce Aztec words instead. You can do that by going to the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com, and clicking on the PayPal subscription button. If you want to continue the conversation, you can find us on social media. We're on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash thehistoryofpodcast, and on Twitter, at HistoryJamie. You can also send me an email if you have any questions, comments, or concerns. The address is thehistoryofpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.